0: Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. How are you this week?
1: Well I'm bearing up after a a late flight from Madrid. Got me in at 2am this morning. And then my wife was really inconsiderate so she still got up early and clattered around and brought me a cup of tea. And I did say, can I just sleep? No. No wouldn't let me and I did no. I've done no photography at all if you're gonna ask me
0: well I was but is that is that because taking a, a large format camera <laughs> on your travels is that is that a bit tricky for you do you think do you, think, oh, do you I wish there's like an answer for that
1: kind of I problem sh- I see where you're going with this. so I, uh, yes, yes. I, th- I think if we had if we
0: had a 4x5 camera that we could take
1: with us on our travels that would just be the answer to everything, wouldn't it?
0: It would. It would. It's a, it's a shame that such a camera does not exist and probably never will. Uh, but, you know, we, we we can hope for for something like that one day, perhaps. Oh, hang on. Hang on. There, there
1: may be somebody who can help us?
0: No. No, no, no. Okay. Nobody. No. <laughs> no. And uh, so... Uh, that's that's your week. Thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, it's a crap week, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. It was. Uh, I, I've had a, a, a slight I say, a week. Yeah, we keep forgetting that this show goes out fortnightly. Yet we actually only recorded last week's mm. last week. I mean, it's only a week since we last uh, recorded. Who, so. who was our guest last week? Stephen. Se- oh, <laughs> I'm already mispronouncing his name. The I Kung know. Fu Man, you know, <laughs> act, the
1: all-action, the all-action large format Steve, What's Steven,
0: his name? Se- Stephen Segazby. <laughs> um, I, 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 Stephen Sigel Sigal. Sigel, that's it. Well, last, last week's guest, um, well, two with the guest from two weeks ago, was C- Stephen Sigazb. Oh, Sigazb, <laughs> I'm I'm really sorry, Stephen. I'm really sorry. Um, they've been they've been uh, having a go at me. The, our guest and uh, and Andrew. Um, so uh, I just want to thank you for uh, last week because you were a great guest and it was a it was a really really interesting listen. But uh, um, but just. Uh, Talking about the things that I was doing this week i 've been involved in a um, specialist uh, auction specialist camera auction and preparing um, some items for, uh, for for that auction and uh, my interestingly in the first job that I actually had uh, was preparing around um, about twelve large format cameras uh, wooden brass cameras uh, for for the to be photographed. Uh, and it was a case of they were all in pieces, so it was just like one big Lego and Meccano uh, uh, task, but really loved it. So uh, I learned a bit more about how things go together, and I then learned that I couldn't remember how to take them back apart again, um, and so on and so on. So uh, yeah, really really enjoyed that, so that was, that was good fun. Um, have
1: you made any images this week, or uh, anything exciting like that?
0: No, no images have been made mm-hmm. this week. Okay. No. no.
1: I stumbled upon a fantastic analog store in Madrid because I, I did take a camera with me, but it was an Olympus Pen EE3. So about as far from four-five as you can get. And I ran out of film. So I went to this really cool little analog funky store where they sell cameras and uh, books and film and bought a roll of FP4. That's about as exciting as it got in Madrid.
0: I was going to say, how, how do you actually run out of film on a half frame camera? Well, I didn't take any. Uh, it
1: was I was halfway through, and I thought it was a thirty-six, which is seventy-two, but I'd not rolled it. I think because it's half-frame, I didn't roll it as long as I thought I'd rolled it. So I ran out at about fifty. <laughs> right,
0: right. Well, that's that's pretty much us this week. Um, it is. But we have a guest with us, um, and he's fresh from an appearance on the Film Photography Podcast. Um, so I want to welcome Ethan Moses to the calmer surroundings of the LFPP. So uh, hello, Ethan.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Hello, Ethan. Hello. Hello, mate, all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's great to have you here, Ethan. Um, and uh, yeah, so you're, you're a bit of a podcasting superstar at the moment, so-, so Podcasting well,
2: tart, I think is the expression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah uh podcasting cart i like that <laughs> um
0: so uh, so yes uh, you, you're you're with us this week uh, so you just just got the two of us to talk to um so perhaps uh, you might want to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, uh, well, we know quite a bit about you already, but uh, certainly our our, our listeners. Uh, perhaps you can say, you know, let people know who is Ethan Moses. Uh, what are the kind of things that you're uh, up to, and how did you get how did you get get to this point and being on the large format photography podcast?
2: Sure. Um... So, who is Ethan Moses, international man of mystery, medium successful business star? Um, so, I, I've always been into photography. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, my grandfather was a photographer. He uh, was like a World War II photographer, and he came back and started a studio, and you know, put everybody through college. Um, and I think I was the first college dropout in my uh in my family after him because i wanted to become a photographer and that didn't work out so well i went back and got a degree in economics after living on my mom's couch for too long um yeah so i've always built some cameras um i think one of my first favorite cameras that i built was a eight x ten just out of wood it was a monorail camera that a friend and i shot a bunch of paper negatives on in uh, college and um yeah re- more recently i've started um 3d printing cameras and selling them on the internet at cameradactyl.com uh, i've made a bunch of uh four x five cameras from um you know one of my favorites is uh it's like a Deerdorf eight x ten and i i made sort of based on that a uh four x five field camera that's 3d printed and looks like you know, the crazy multicolored robots. And then um, from some requests, I made a handheld four by five. And, you know, I, I don't just work in large format, but that's um, a bit simpler place to start building cameras. Uh, I'm working on a six by nine camera right now. Um, yeah, I, I, I build cameras um, for about Oh, almost a decade I bought and sold cameras professionally Um, I've been to 50 states driving around buying out um, you know uh, photo studios that once had you know a bazillion dollars worth of uh, film camera equipment that was you know maybe by 2010 pretty worthless Um, and so you know buy things clean them fix them sell them on ebay or my website uh way back when and then i sort of moved to buying out camera stores um, i grew up in new york where back then we had about 300 camera stores in the city and now we have you know well less than that in the entire country and so um i made a living for a while sort of just buying out camera stores that were going out of business and selling things to artists and amateurs and people like me who always wanted a Hasselblad who you know at 17 years old, I could never afford a Hasselblad at $5,000. But, you know, for a while there, they were really, really inexpensive. And um, yeah, so I I learned a lot about cameras. I'm I'm pretty mechanically or or technically inclined. Uh, I'm not the best of engineers, but um, I really enjoy it. And um, yeah, I've sort of put my two passions together for uh, cameras and photography and and making things. And um, I'm having a go at it.
1: sorry Simon. go on no no go on andrew (laughs) paper negative you mentioned paper negatives was that the first thing you shot with on large format
2: um no i don't think it was but it was something that i found pretty quickly um you know being a high school kid into photography and and a college kid i did not really have very much money um Mm. but uh paper was cheap and i had school dark rooms and uh you know, even had a few school studios that I had access to, and so um, I started playing with it. I really like it. Um, you know, I, I find uh, because paper is um, orthochromatic and and really like um, not very sensitive to reds, more sensitive to you know blues. It makes people's skin look really ruddy, which is you know um, pretty nice for photographing like grizzled old men. Um, not always the best look for photographing your girlfriend. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I really dug how it looked in, in certain situations, particularly when you can control the, uh, the light and the contrast in the studio. And, um, yeah, I, I keep shooting it. Uh, usually when I make a new camera, I'll shoot a round of paper negatives just because they're, you know, cheap and quick, uh, to test the camera before I start running some film through it. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had some more studio space, um, and then I would definitely shoot a lot more of it.
1: Any uh, hints and tips for particularly new listeners who are thinking, well, what's he talking about? Paper negatives.
2: Yeah. So, um, a I'll, I'll probably a lot of the listeners already know this, but I'll I'll go through it. Um, so, um, photographic paper is basically the same uh, as photographic film right and so when you print you're projecting a negative onto a piece of paper and making a negative of a negative which um you know is a positive um and so you can shoot directly onto paper and usually paper's film speed is somewhere between uh iso one and four I, i generally rate um my paper around two or three I use filtered multi-contrast RC or paper negatives because it does not have uh, a watermark on the back and it's nice and uh, really sharp and contrasty um, <clears throat> so you can then take that and either you know contact print it or even enlarge it if you have a big enough enlarger. larger um, and you know the paper is um, opaque uh, but not completely and so um, yeah, you can use it like a regular negative, or you can scan it. Um, I almost prefer scanning it often because the grain of the paper will show up, or the pulp of the paper. Um, if you project through it, uh, it's not nice and clear like, like, you know, the acetate or or you know whatever the film backing is. Um, yeah,
1: and you can uh, you can you can control it as well. If you, I think with RC paper, it's. N- not so easy but with fiber paper you can take a soft pencil and shade in the back to increase the the density so you can do shading on the back and
2: yeah uh, so and, i, I and actually around with it i prefer um, rc paper for paper negatives um, there's some issues to it but really um, a lot of the really nice fiber papers have more of a visible uh, pulp structure or, or weave mm. that if you contact print them they um, it'll show up in in the final print and that's I find that a little annoying although sometimes it's um, You know what you're going for um, yeah. the the annoying part about working with it is um, Depending upon the color of light you're using um, the Contrast of the paper can change and so I have a really hard time shooting like landscapes and anything with the sky right because blue shows up so white um, like the sky will burn out but um, you know, like I said, in in a, it's also you know naturally a very contrasty paper, and so um, if you are in a studio and you can control the amount of contrast in your scene, um, you can really get some very nice results. And there, you know, there have been people who've shot outside um, in less controlled light uh, more successfully than me. Um,
1: you can pre-flash if you've got a dark room. You can yeah add a little bit of tone to the paper. Well, not really visible tone, but. If you flash it so that it just comes below the level of visible tone, then it softens the contrast a bit.
2: Yeah, and you can also, you know, overexpose a little and underdevelop. Um, mm-hmm. I like doing that. Um, yeah.
1: Do you have any questions on paper negative, Simon? Is that something you have ever been drawn to?
0: Well, um, only only to do with the the subject that that we we never talk about on this podcast, which is pinhole. <laughs> <laughs> um i've uh, i've i did i did some uh pinholes uh, on world pinhole uh, photography day i did that with uh, paper negative and i did that in my uh my meridian five by four uh camera and then to um digitize that i literally just took a photograph of the of the, of the paper but it sounds sounds to me so are you are you are you projecting somehow projecting the paper onto another Piece of paper, or I, I, yeah. I'm actually getting a little bit lost here on that.
2: So I, I don't have. You could, but I don't have a four by five or eight by ten and larger. So generally, I'm making contact prints, and you know, I love the way contact prints look anyway. And I don't have a place to hang a giant print, so either I'm making a contact print or then scanning and then uh, using it for the internet. I don't really do too much digital printing, but but you could. You can.
1: Uh, you can if you've got a four or five and larger simon you can you can take your paper uh, and project through it so with the yeah, image just... facing down and project and and you and the light will go through it and you can project down onto photographic paper to make your positive you can then if you want to you can then manipulate the positive again by with pencil marks on the back and yeah. and, and and keep going with negative positive negative positive till you get some really weird results but yeah, or you can just contact print like Ethan says and put two, two pieces of paper face to your negative emulsion in contact with a, a new piece of paper and then just shine a light through the back you can do a test strip so you keep covering over the sandwich of, uh, of negative and, and, uh, and paper and determine your optimum print, you can use contrast filters in the dark room if you want to to soften or harden the um, the contrast and I, I don't think I've mentioned him on the large format photography podcast but he's certainly been a guest on the lensless Andrew Sanderson and Andrew has a book all about paper negatives which I've mentioned a few times elsewhere and Andrew's blurb book on using paper negatives is probably the definitive guide and I know because I've been chatting with him he is updating it at the moment to the, I think just to take into account that some papers have disappeared and some others have come on the scene
0: I mean that's that's another thing actually. I mean that's something that we were uh, bef- beforehand when we were just chatting about about the show, uh, Ethan. That you you particularly liked. I believe you particularly like to use um, paper negatives for portrait work. Is that is that right?
2: Yeah, particularly of like you know grizzled old men, uh, pe- people that um, it will enhance the photo. So um, you know a lot of fine skin detail um, really happens. Uh, in in red and so um, a lot of times you'll get uh, like all of the capillaries under your skin and your your pores are slightly redder and that those will come out very dark and uh, it makes your skin look ruddy so it's like maybe a great thing to photograph like Clint Eastwood I, I don't want to be like super gendered about who you shoot and how but um, you know uh, it, it has a certain look that that lends itself to some some types of portraiture. Um,
1: you need think, to find you need to find a few grizzled old men, Simon, mm-hmm.
0: wandering around stoke <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I, do uh, I haven't taken many photographs of my father for a while, uh, but he, he, he definitely yeah.
2: applies. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. um, one thing while we're talking about paper and eggs, I I think it's worth mentioning. Um, there are a couple other ways that you can uh, get a positive out of it. So one is they make some reversal papers, like Guilford Harmon, which I never really liked. I found it really way too hard for me to control the contrast even in a studio and then um there's reversal processes for regular paper which i'm really excited to try but um you know sort of just found out about this recently and uh yeah i haven't i haven't given myself a month to play with that yet and then the other thing is um i really like to make a laser cut version of this one day is a uh, you guys know what an Afghan box camera is? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not,
2: not 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 me. So uh, there's
1: great YouTube. Well, write it down, Simon, and when you get a moment, Google it.
2: Yeah, there, there's some excellent YouTube videos about um, people making them, and I think somebody made a documentary in the '90s about actual um, Afghani photographers using yes. them in daily work. I think that's uh, but, what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. The the idea of it is like. It's a large format camera with instead of a film back, it's just got this giant box on the back and it's got sleeves like from a dark bag and maybe a little peephole that you cover up with your uh, with your eye while you're looking inside or red window and they'd shoot a paper negative and then actually develop it inside the box. They'd have two trays, just a developer and fixer. I think they would run the fixer out a little quicker, but it saved them room from having a stop tray they'd wash it in a bucket outside and then the camera actually just had like a little stand uh to hold the negative up and then they would rephotograph it so they'd focus on the on the negative and they'd just take a picture of it um again on paper and then uh that would be the positive i think that's a pretty interesting way to go This is i just just
0: just looked it up now and uh hey yeah, it looks looks absolutely fantastic
2: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to make one of these. It's like
1: instant photography. You must get the same effect. I mean, I've done a lot of street portraits with peel apart uh, film, uh, 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 and the reaction you get from folks on the street when you peel some old Polaroid apart and show them these uh, pictures, you know. But to do it and actually make a wet print on the on the street is is uh, is crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you
1: just go take it back a bit, Ethan, because you mentioned. You mentioned Harman Direct Positive Paper, which I'm, um, I've i actually worked my way through one box of it so far with mm-hmm. hit and miss results, shall we say. Yeah. I think the, the lighting conditions, I've used it in my large format camera, um, and I got some great pictures of a friend of mine uh, down by the river in Norwich, and they came out great. Uh, pretty high contrast, but enough detail in the midtones. I have tried flashing the paper uh, in the darkroom, and that that works. That softens it down a bit, but I haven't uh, I haven't mastered it by a long shot, really. I like the idea of it, but I haven't mastered it. You talked about there's a process for normal photographic paper, so you can actually end up making a positive. Is that what you were talking about?
2: Yeah. So. I want to say it was uh, Don Frula, uh, D-O-N-F-R-O-U-L-A, on Instagram. He's a guy I've been following. Uh, I think he's like an old telecom engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. I haven't talked to him, but I'm I'm a big fan of his work. Um, He was doing some Instagram videos about this uh, the other day. And basically, you go through the standard developing process, and then you bleach the image out. And then... I think the process goes that you flash the paper again. So you've managed to bleach out everything uh, that has developed, right? So that can't develop. And then everything that's not developed, um, you can uh, flash just by turning the room lights on. And then um, I think they use iron out to remove some of the bleached uh, the bleached silver halides. And then, um, I think they develop it again. I'm not 100% sure of the process. There's some YouTube videos about it, but um, it requires one or two extra steps. And um, yeah, it, it looks pretty interesting. I'm, I'm really curious about it. And the other thing about like uh, Ilford Harmon paper is, is pretty um, expensive and comparable to the cost of film, at which point I'd probably rather shoot film. <laughs> uh, but regular paper is still pretty dirt cheap.
1: Yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm going to buy any more direct positive paper. I, quite, I, I, I still like the idea of it because it's kind of a novelty, mm-hmm. but um, I'm not sure I've got the patience to work with it, to be truthful. Didn't um, the old developing process for slide film, Ethan, go back years? Didn't I used to read about, used to have to at some point expose that to light? There was a flashing process as part of the reversal Process um, in old in old. It probably wasn't C, not C41. What are they? What's the um, E6? E6. Before, yeah, but before that easy process we have now, I'm sure, and there must be some wise person listening to this show, that the process used to involve flashing the film to light as part of the, as part of the process.
2: Yeah, that makes some sense. You know, I developed a lot of E6 back in high school, um, just in a Jobo rotary tank. Um, That did not require any flashing, but you know, I kind of came to it in the late 90s, and so it was kind of pretty advanced uh, chemical photography.
1: Yeah, we're probably talking in the decades before that, but
2: yeah, the 60s maybe, or Kodachrome or something.
1: Yeah, so somebody listening, Sandeha Lynch or someone like that, just. Send us an email or give us a shout out on the lensless. No, not yeah. the lensless. What's uh-huh. the, other? the large format <laughs> photography? I'd, I'd love the to hear. Facebook the group to that, and uh, just see if I'm, if I dreamt that. Did I dream that that you had to flash slide film in early processes to make it become a positive? I don't know. Do you know,
0: Simon? I have no idea. Well, I think you knew that,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? It would seem like it would work, or at least in. In black and white, right? Because the the idea of the process, I believe, is that you bleach what has been developed, right? The activated silver halides, and then you remove them uh, with uh, some sort of, I think iron out is, is sort of like a Drano, uh, drain cleaner type of thing that, that bonds to the metals. And then you then re-expose everything that has been not developed. Right, so you get the reversal uh, so it, it would make sense to me that there would be some sort of uh, you know flashing in, in some early uh, reversal processes.
1: Because if you think you combine all these weird things like pseudo solarization where you switch the lights on halfway through developing mm-hmm. and you get a sort of reversal of tones don't you mm-hmm. you've got bleaching which you can, then re, you can then redevelop or tone prints so it all kinds of, uh, it all kinds of uh, makes sense to me but hey, can I ask you, Ethan? What possessed you to make that uh, Mother Care camera called the Camera Dactyl?
0: Oh, can can we just hold that one ever so slightly? Because there's some there's while we're just on the subject of yep. uh, these paper negatives, there was a, uh-huh. a, a specific question there, uh, and and that's how you're actually shooting these eight these eight by tens, um, because <laughs> uh, as we know, you're you're building cameras, but I think you've actually you you were you've built your camera or cameras to act specifically to, to do that. Is that, is that right?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, not specifically for paper negatives, but, um, you know, I put the paper in a normal film holder. Um, yeah. So I guess when I was in high school, we had like a loaner eight by 10 that I used. Um, and then when I was in college, I did not have access to one. And so I I built an eight by 10, um, I still have most of it, a lot of it got stolen out of the trunk of my car in the Bronx many years ago, but uh, I like to take it out to show people. Uh, I just built it, you know, with basically like a hand circular saw and uh, a, like a electric drill and uh, some glue, um, it's, you know, a monorail camera that I made out of wood, and I actually spent a day or two wandering around uh, the East village, going to like these weird shops and asking them to cover my head in black latex and go stare at the sun like a total creeper. Um, I finally found some, you know, uh, like, like uh, black pleather or vinyl material. And uh, I got a lot of pizza boxes from the local pizza store and uh, <laughs> cut them up into ribs for the the bellows. And yeah, it worked really well. Um, back then, uh, I think the first couple of experiments I did, I, I did not own an 8x10 lens and that was still, you know, the days of film being uh, used professionally. So 8x10 lenses were very expensive. And so I tried a magnifying glass and, it, you know, it made an image but nothing good. And eventually I bought a process lens on eBay. You know, this must have been, I don't know, 2004 or something. And that worked really, really well. Um, I had the cap of a hundred-foot roll of Tri-X or something that I had as a lens cap, and I just um, you know put it over the process lens, and you know take it off, pop the flash, and then put it back on. And uh, yeah, it was super sharp and flat and uh, nice tones. Um, so that that was a camera I shot a lot of eight by tens on, but um, these days I, I shoot a lot of four by five stuff just because i don't have a giant printer although i'm working on a laser cut 8 by 10 but that project is not done yet and sort of backburnered um but yeah i, I shoot them in my uh dactyl field camera and, and more often these days in my uh 4x5 og hand camera
0: so so in the early days you you were you you know, you, you you built your own ten by eight camera uh, or eight by ten some some time ago, and that then, and this is pretty much where Andrew was coming in there. It it, it from, from that experience, who, and and your your other experiences and education, you uh, decided to put some of that together, and somehow you came up with the idea of this. Well, actually, I, I wonder about the camera dactyl. I said the the final. Uh, camera dactyl as we saw it did you envisage it looking like it like the finished product or was it were you going to actually just build a, a straight uh um sorry about that um a, a straight uh 4x5 camera
2: well so um i've built two 4x5s right now that i've i've released uh the first one is is more of a field camera you know it folds up into a box and then has full swings and tilts and it bellows Um, And that one I think looks the absolute craziest. Um, A lot of people really think about what I do is like, I make crazy looking things, um, but you know, my, my day job, uh, day job, uh, if you can call it, that is, you know, making industrial equipment and nobody really cares, you know, what color their, you know, sprocket holder can counter is so long as it puts out, you know, 80 cans a minute or whatever it's doing. And so uh, to start, I was just printing in you know whatever color I could find the deal of the day on Amazon when I ran out of plastic, and um, I I am not a guy who really cares what things look like. I care what they do and how they function. You know, I drive beat up old cars. I um, you know my cameras are all like you know I have a lot of cameras, but they're all sort of working but pretty beat up and scuffed. I, you know, uh, image is not uh, not my first concern, but um, just sort of by coincidence, the, the first cameras I made wound up looking like uh, Barbie Dream cameras, like, like in the craziest colors. And I, I let people choose their own color schemes, and they came up with some really wacky and uh, arguably very disgusting-looking <laughs> uh, color schemes. Um, one of my favorites was... Um, oh... Um, you know, Jason Lane from, uh, Jason Lane dry plates. Yep. Yep. Uh, his daughters designed one in like purple and pink and unicorns. It was, uh, <laughs> I think one of the best designs of all of the Kickstarter cameras that I sold. Um, and so that, that kind of became a thing that, that people really dig. Um, I also make these camera grips for generally 35 millimeter SLRs and some other things. Um, and i found like, now it's it's over seventy percent of what I sell is all in black plastic, right? The classic uh, camera color. But um, I also have found that nobody would ever write an article about me if I had sold black grips. Plenty of people do that, although I think my grips are, you know, pretty good and well priced and do what they need to do. But you know, if you put a hot pink grip on a Leica, um, you're bound to like draw enough ire of petapixel readers that um you know it's it's some free marketing and so i've sort of leaned into weird and wacky colors um this last project the camera dactyl og hand camera um i kind of knew almost exactly what it would look like um there have been some tweaks you know based upon the geometry of the lens and the film dictating you know how big it is and how uh you know what what the shape is um but, yeah, I, I kind of at that point knew that I would, you know, one, offer everything that I sell in all black for the purists. And then, um, I, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, the, the pro model of every camera was like the black painted version of, you know, the Nikon FM or whatever, uh, rather than just the silver metal. And so I, I've been offering like the pro model in hot pink. Um, and, and like there are parts that, you know need to be uh, light light tight and generally those parts of camera bodies and nose cones I will offer only in black but um yeah I I offer um accent pieces and you know all sorts of colors anything I can get my hands on and even color changing colors like a purple that turns to pink when you uh hold it in your hand or you know green to yellow
0: I've 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 got to say when I when I first saw I think he, I think Hamish Gill had one um, mm-hmm. on a on a on a Leica I think it was a Leica and yeah. and, I, and then I I kept on seeing these colour changing ones and ridiculous colours on on these cameras and I, I, in fact actually I remember um, I think you I think you followed me on Instagram uh, via Buttergrip or some something like that mm-hmm. and I was thinking I'm not following this guy. Look what yeah. it does to these cameras! <laughs> no yeah. way. And, uh, but uh, but I followed you on CameraDactyl instead. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. like, this I can get behind, but I can't mm-hmm. get behind Buttergrip. I was I was just ideologically against it. I've calmed down about it now. I've, I'm I'm chilled out, but it, yeah. it, it, it did get a reaction from me. And I like I, said, I don't. I'm I'm no kind of purist, or perhaps I am, and didn't realise it. But uh, but yeah, those those those, mm-hmm. those bright colours on the on those beautiful cameras, it really really grated with me at the time.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I think like the last 20 sales I've made, 19 of them have been black grips last week. Uh, but again, like one, nobody would cover it or notice it. You know, a lot of people make camera grips. Uh, I think mine are, you know, again, pretty good and well priced, but, um, yeah, it's, they're noticeable. Also when you photograph a camera with a grip on it, you really want to show the shape of the thing and cameras tend to be black. And so I remember, um, printing a wedding my dad shot once and there was a kid stand, like it was a group shot and there was a kid standing uh, in front of, or sitting in front of a man standing and the man was wearing black, a black suit and the kid had black hair and it just looked like his head was disappearing. And you have that kind of effect when you try and shoot a black grip against a black body. It's very hard to tell um, or a white grip against a white background. And so um, you know, hot pink does the trick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Ethan, sorry. sorry Ethan, can I draw you back, uh, much as I love your grips, can I draw you back to the camera dactyl, Your Sure, sure, yeah. Your uh, large format Kickstarter. Now, yeah, colors aside, actually, I'm looking at one on, uh, on your Instagram page with some just – I'm just trying to see past the colors, okay? Because it's just mm-hmm. – yeah. So it's, uh, it's making give me a headache but it's got some great movements so do, what sort of research did you do did you specifically go and look at you know what sort of cameras were out there and were you looking at get, you know, getting loads of different movements on there and what, what was your sort of thoughts process behind the camera the camera dactyl field camera
2: yeah so um I had this printer on my desk and I was thinking I could probably make a camera. What is a camera that, you know, I have a lot of cameras uh, in my personal collection and some that I used to buy and sell. Um, But what, what was a camera that I really loved that I think I could, if not reproduce like a model that looked just like it, but reproduce a model that, worked just like it right so it's it's for me all about function and one of my very favorite cameras of all time is the Deardorf uh, v8 um i actually have a Deerdorf 11 by 14 in my closet not the Bushmaster. Not, yeah the the, uh, the bushman uh bushman. bush sorry bush pressman d was was a real favorite of mine but that's a lot like a speed Graphic. it's got a lot of complicated parts on it i did not want to uh deal with it at, you know my first attempt uh, but yeah, um, so I, I had this Deardorf, and I knew what it did and I wanted to, you know, replicate the camera that could do almost as much as that and basically make as much of it out of plastic as I could. Um, I think I, I came really close to, you know, the function of the thing. It folds up. It's got, you know, swings and tilts and rise and fall and uh, just a, a ton of movements and gear uh, focusing with a rack and pinion, but um you know, all of the, the Deerdorf is precision machined. Um, and my camera is extruded out of plastic. So, um, if you think about the Deerdorf like, uh, Legos, my camera would be like the Duplo version, you know? So all of the swing arms were, I don't know, 10 times as thick as the thin metal ones on a, on a Deerdorf. And, you know, there were some things that I had to completely re-engineer. Um, I talk about this a lot is that, um, you can get a precision movement out of non precision parts if you're clever about it, so um the Deerdorf, for example, has rack and pinion focusing um and the way they achieve like a smooth and tight fit is just they machine things perfectly um which i you know I just can't make a gear that's so tiny um and you know it just wouldn't be strong out of plastic, so what I did was I made these big oversized gears. I just designed a system where I used some screws to tension uh, the pinion against the rack. And so if that's adjustable, um, you can adjust it to the point where they're pressed against each other just enough so that it's smooth but also tight.
1: Like an interference, almost like interference. Interference fit is when it's just a bit tight, isn't it? When it's just sort of using its tension against each other.
2: Right, right. And and so, you know, I have, on a lot of my designs, had to design screw adjusters to adjust that interference bit rather than mm. just relying on, you know, perfect machining of tiny, very hard metal parts. Yeah.
1: What's the weight of one of these camera dactyl field cameras, Ethan?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, oh, I've just seen the unicorn one. Oh, dear me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were <laughs> a couple unicorn ones, actually. Oh. Um, oh. I want to say there are like, three and a half or four pounds they're not super light uh the oh. og hand camera is ridiculously light and and i think way stronger um yeah. I, I learned a bunch of things from it I, um yeah
1: i think that's you know that's obviously where we where we lead on to with this with the og but th- these camera dactils are no longer for sale or is it just so difficult for you and time consuming? that
2: you Yeah, it was, it was very time consuming. Um, so that camera was, I was less new at CAD, but pretty new to 3d printing. And I designed this camera in CAD, like around uh, the camera that I wanted. Right. And then I figured out later how to print it. Um, and that led to, um, just not being super thoughtful about the production process. And so, that camera takes 145 hours to print with no errors. Um, and uh, maybe 40% of the plastic used in the process I throw in the garbage. It's just support materials because I didn't make everything uh, a shape that is uh, easily 3D printed. And so what happened was, if, you know, it takes 145 hours to print a camera. You got to throw away a ton of plastic. It uses a ton of extra plastic. Um, it's not nearly as durable as you know some of my newer cameras, and it just takes um, hours and hours to trim and adjust uh, that camera and assemble it. And then the other thing was the bellows. You know, it takes a long time to precisely fold the bellows and, and attach it. And so it's a camera. I still have all the files and, and a bunch of extra materials for it, um, and I could produce it but I think I sold them for $225 on Kickstarter uh, or 210 for early bird, something like that. And, you know, it just, I I was like a victim of my very mild success. Uh, And so I spent about a month and a half just filling those orders and um, you know, I, I could sell them again, but for what I think I would have to sell them for to make it worth my time. um, I think people you Know just from a functional standpoint, people would be better off to go buy a bush pressman D. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, as, as an art piece, uh, you know, maybe it's worth four or five hundred dollars, but as a working tool for four hundred, five hundred dollars, I think you can just go out and buy a better tool. I, you know, I don't want to poo poo my own products, but also my ethos is like to make something that is, you know, works well, does its job, and then. Is also you know competitively or, or better priced than anything else that does that job, and those really you know uh, to be well priced, they they really hurt me <laughs> to uh, produce, and so that was you know an interesting lesson. I'm glad I spent that month doing that and you know building 10 3D printers, and um, you know I have started using some other technology, which is um, I've, I've used this giant laser cutter um, to cut. Flat pieces, and so I'm working on an eight by ten now. That's it's shelved behind two or three other projects that I've got going. But um, you know, it uses three D printed brackets and big uh, laser cut uh, plywood or acrylic. Is
1: this an eight by ten field
2: camera? Field camera, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And and so that you know, instead of 140 hours of printing, it's something like 40 hours of printing, and then. Um, you know, two or three hours of laser cutting and some assembly. It's still not going to be the cheapest of cameras, but I think, you know, for what it is, it will be well-priced. Uh, and, you and can buy well.
1: what Intrepid are selling their Mark II 10.8 at, what's that, about four, 500 pounds, somewhere around there?
2: Yeah, I think it translates to something around $600 US. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, mine, I can get in just under that or right around there. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think mine will be maybe twice as heavy, um, a little stiffer, and and probably better for sort of like studio work, uh, but maybe not as good uh, for backpacking.
1: Well, I mean that brings you know I think first of all I think it'd be really great to have another option in ten eight affordable you know <laughs> uh, f- field cameras. Ben Horn, who's been on this yeah. show, he has the Mark II, and I know he's a he's a big fan. I think he has a few work around to make it a little bit steadier?
2: Yeah. I, I uh, So one of the issues uh, that I fixed last before moving on to something else that I had to do was uh, you know, a wobbly front standard. Mm. And I watched his video on the Intrepid where he's got this ridiculous like string system to mm, tie the thing bungee, down. String or bungee cords or something. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I looked at that and I said, no, I'm just going to make the camera a little bit heavier and just not wobble in the first place. But, you know, I'm, I'm a real fan of Intrepid. I think what they've done um, is exactly my ethos, but maybe even better, which is to make something that just works, does its job well, you know, is very reasonably priced or, or excellently priced. And um, yeah, it's, it's got its quirks as do all sort of large format cameras. They're not the, I show me a sleek, large format camera, uh, you know, as <laughs> not, not really a thing. Uh, but yeah. I, I think they've done really well and, you know, sort of have an inspirational uh, product and company.
1: Yeah, no, they are. They're very good. I think that it sort of draws us towards, we get we get questions on the on the Facebook group, on the large format. Photography podcast Facebook group, well, I want to buy my first large format camera, what should I buy? And that's, you know, that, those questions are so, so, so very difficult because it depends what you want you know, to use shoot. it for. Yeah. yeah, and all sorts of questions like that. So it's, it's not an easy one. And wait, wait. And this leads me on to sort of hand-holding four or five cameras. Mm-hmm. Weight um, is could be an issue. Now, mm-hmm. for, for me, most of my photography is done close to the back of the car or on very short hiking trips. So I, I don't mind slightly heavier field cameras. I have the Toyo 45A. Which
2: I oh, that's a beautiful before. camera.
1: And, you know, that's, that's compact. It's rugged. It's functional. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got full movements on it. And yeah,
2: I really love that camera
1: and, and it, and it's, and it's great. You know, the back revolves, I've got a wooden handmade Italian camera, which is, I thought was actually lighter than my Toyo, but just before the show started, I weighed them both and they're oh. both the same weight, yeah. <laughs> but I, I can't handhold them. And I, and I'm going on, I'm going on, uh, on holiday. I nearly said vacation in, in, uh, at the end of, at the end of this weekend. And I'm going to take a, probably take the Toyo with me um, because, well, you know, I won't be hiking large distances and I just want to use the large format. I can use my roll film back on the, uh, on, on the camera so I can shoot up to 6.17 if I want to with it. But, you know, it, it's not spontaneous. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, a handheld, I see the Graphlex or Speed Graphics, and people, you know, those press cameras, uh, you know, you can handhold. I mean, my Toyo's got a hand grip on the side of it, or sort of, but I don't think really I'd handhold it. And I think to myself, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, w- why would I want to shoot four or five handheld? Um, and then I see your camera, your new OG camera, and then I look back at the Travel Wide camera that was out a few years ago, and I can see, I can, I can see the attraction of it. Um, but Ethan, convince me why I need a handheld four-five camera.
2: Sure. So I mean, I know you guys have covered this a bit on the podcast, but let's back it up and, like, we'll we'll talk about um, maybe why people would would choose one type of camera or another, uh, yes, particularly for their first. 4x5 camera or or what I chose when I was starting out. Um, I think my first large format camera was a speed graphic I bought for 125 bucks with a lens on eBay, maybe in 1999 or the year 2000. Um, I was really mad at my dad. He had like a Calumet orbit when he was in high school in the 70s and somehow I think he broke my stepmom's sink and used the rail for it to fix the leg. And so that, that camera was not around by the time I wanted one. And so I used a speed graphic for a while. Um, it is sort of one of those machines that is medium good at everything, kind of like the Aqua car, but um, was not the best field camera and not the best handheld camera. And it was, it was a really like interesting camera to learn on. Um, there's a lot of interesting quirks about the speed graphic and I, I really love it um, for its sort of engineering. Um, although I'm not, uh super into using them um i keep one around for measurements and such um but yeah it's it's if you're not sure what you want to shoot i think a speed graphic is a really um like a good choice or a crown graphic or you know one of those style press cameras that can be had for not very much money if you i would say you know your first camera you should just definitely like buy the working one that's all beat up because you're probably going to use whatever camera for a while and then decide what you really want and maybe, um, buy some fancier cameras. But, um, yeah, the speed graphic has a bunch of swings and tilts, not a, not a ton of movements, but enough that if that's something that interests you, you can, um, play with, um, if you plan on shooting studio stuff, you can buy monorail cameras, dirt cheap, I think, um, like a Calumet orbit or a a Kodak graphic view or, um, one of the, uh, Omega cameras, I think they were made by Toyo or with Toyo, but they're sort of quote unquote, lower quality. Uh, I mean, you can buy one of those bodies for like 70 bucks if you're looking around and like, I would never take one of those, uh, hiking. You, you must use it on a tripod, but you know, if studio work is what you're doing or even just shooting under the back of your car. I think that's a really good deal. Um, you know, to get to play with a ton of movements and, um, you know, get get into four by five pretty inexpensively. Um, then, you know, the other option is if you think you are going to do a lot of backpacking or travel or uh, street sh- shooting, which uh, all of those things are something that I'm really into. Um, I think the camera is is kind of the logical conclusion, um, I tried to make it pretty inexpensive, I, I'm selling the bodies for, you know, 200 bucks, it does not have any movements. So, um, you know, if if you think you want to start trying out swings and tilts, this is not the camera for you. But um, for things like extreme wide angle lenses, you know, I make a cone right now down to a 47 millimeter Schneider XL, um, which works out to be something like a 12 millimeter on 35 millimeter format um you can hand hold it um, the whole camera weighs well it depends what lens you have on it and uh, how big the the nose cone to accommodate it is but I think with one sheet film holder in it and a ground glass in my 127 hectar my entire camera weighs like two pounds 14 ounces uh, which is less than my Nikon f with uh 35 millimeter on it and so it's a little bit bigger but it's Pretty light uh, and it's really durable. Um, I don't. I'm not a fan of camera bags. I usually carry a backpack. I do a lot of backpacking out here in the Southwest, and so I'll just throw it in the top. You know, maybe put a lens cap on it if I'm feeling uh, <laughs> feeling nervous about the scratchy things in my backpack, um, or I'll just you know uh, toss it in the the seat of the car. And um, yeah, it's it's. Very durable uh, and it's very light and it's medium small, small for a large format camera. But
1: and where big you where time. where you live? I mean, I love I love the states. I love road trips and I, uh, I tend to my equivalent camera to take with me would be my GW six ninety. So it's sure fixed. You know, one lens, minimal choices, a big negative, mm-hmm. but with here with so this is the next step up for me. So for my next American road trip, I shall be in touch with you first. There's, right. there's, there's a picture here I'm looking at on your Instagram feed, and I, I was wondering what sort of lens you had on here. I think this is yours. So it's, um, uh, it's in your, uh, your neck of the woods, Ethan. And it's got the, it's a street picture of a road with some street furniture, and it's got the word only. I think it means left turn. Oh yeah. It's a fil- filter lane, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so that perspective that Angular view is just, I think, just perfect. What, um, do, you, do you know, is that, do you, do you know what that was?
2: Yeah, that was um, Monta Vista right off Girard here in Albuquerque. Um, that he was a, the, the... lens. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, that was a Kodak 127.0. Hmm. Oh, that might have been an Ektar or an Anastigmat. Um, I'm not sure I have both of them. Uh, that was like the first roll that I roll, mm-hmm. the first batch that I shot with the camera daxel. It was just walking around. So my slightly wide,
1: slightly wide. Then, so slightly wide. Yeah, one
2: yeah. Second. It's about you know a 35 or a 40 millimeter equivalent. Yeah, ton, I think that's why. I think
1: that. that's why I'm being drawn to it because that's a sort of 35 mil.
2: Yeah, that that whole batch in there. Um, I shot less for art than just to test for light leaks. <laughs> it's one of the first things I do. Uh, I went out and shot you know 10 pictures and left the you know yeah. film holders in the but, camera with the dark slide open.
1: But that kind of instinctive shooting, which you you know, with a big negative, you there's nothing wrong with instinctive shooting. Just going out there and you know, like you can get some of your best images. And so, even though they're test shots, I think uh, I think they're great. Thanks. I love this one. There's one here. I'm not sure if it's a double exposure. <laughs> we we don't talk about double exposure. Yeah. Uh, there's one here with uh, some caravans or trailers, as you'd say, and some electric pylons and.
2: Sure. That, that one actually is one of my favorites out of this whole project. Um, I actually dislike shooting double exposures. I, I'm a pretty like in control type of person when I shoot I I like to be, um, not to say, I, you know, I, I like shooting things that happen. I, I think of it as shooting verbs rather than nouns, but, um, that picture, I, I just liked how it turned out and I did it completely by accident. Um, I had been shooting, just again, test rolls um, on Route 66 here in Albuquerque with the original uh, Camera Dactyl field camera. And my car broke down, which is where you see the images of the trailers. Um, mm-hmm. And I took a couple pictures and then I fixed it. I think it was the screw for my alternator tensioner pump uh, got, or the alternator tensioner belt got uh, chucked while I was driving around and I fixed it. And I kind of forgot about that. Uh, I, I guess I forgot to flip the dark slide because I was fixing a car and then months later uh, the next picture that I happened to shoot was uh, on route 66 in my neighborhood on, on the other end of town. Um, and because the two cameras load from opposite sides, right? The camera loads on the left and the uh, camera dactyl OG, uh, loads on the right. I had flipped that sheet of film and just happened to take a picture of the highway hotel mm-hmm. hotel um, and they, lined up well and kind of were two ends of uh, the same road as they call it the mother road here. Route 66 went from Chicago to LA and was like big into car culture and and very important. It's kind of America's main street. And then it it just happened to be shot on two different cameras that I made.
1: I love the idea of, I've done bits of route 66. I'm talking to a friend about possibly doing the whole thing in a few years time, but taking a, a, just very minimal camera gear with me, uh-huh. so either a you know my GW 690 or something like a camera dactyl. So I've got um, I've got a 150 Schneider lens. I've got a 90 mil um, Fuji F8. Yeah. I don't think you've got a I don't think you've made a cone for the Fuji F8, but
2: uh, uh, I actually have one in my queue right now that I do I need to make. I got the okay. specs from a customer. It should be ah, out by okay. two weeks from now.
1: Okay, so that'll be uh, that'll be a bit on the wide side for me. So if you've already done that, so you've got the you'll have the data,
2: presumably. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. So your actual cameras that you're producing then are they're they're effectively custom made to the lenses that your customer has. Is it is that is that right?
2: Yeah. So um, one of the sort of unfortunate but I consider fine things about this camera is because it doesn't have a bellows. Um, you know, the infinity distance is set by the length of the nose cone and then sort of the geometry of the lens, how far the rear element sticks out, how wide it is uh, will determine sort of the geometry of the cone. So it doesn't cause vignetting. Um, And so, you know, I have a list of cones that I've modeled. I probably have, oh, 15 fusion files just for, um, just for the nose cones. Um, And then you know, I haven't been charging anybody anything extra unless they want something really huge and crazy, um, and I just require you know an extra week to get around to spending a day to model it, and uh, you know, uh, the I need four measurements of the lens, which is the, the lens opening size, the uh, flange distance at infinity, um, the rear element diameter and the rear element protrusion beyond the flange. And, you know, I'll make a custom phone for just about anything.
1: So, sorry, just wind back a bit. You're, so you, that flange focal length, if, that's, if I can call it that, yeah, to sure. this, the distance with the camera focused at infinity. So, uh, so if I've got my, I know you've already got the details for the, for the um, Fuji lens, but if I stuck my Fuji lens on my Toyo camera, and I focused at infinity, or as best right. I could. And then I would just measure the distance from the, uh, the, the lens board to the film
2: plane. That's it. Exactly. So from the front yeah. of the lens board or the rear of the shutter to the film plane is the dimension that I want. And generally, that's best done with uh, like a caliper, uh, dial caliper. Has it got to be
1: really precise?
2: precise? Um, yeah. So I generally give a little bit of wiggle room for back focus uh, so that it's not... You know, I I don't trust people also to measure in the same way I measure. Uh, <laughs> I have some some sophisticated measuring tools, I've got a, but got a plastic uh, ruler. Yeah, so plastic rulers is, <laughs> is not great, uh, but but any form of calipers, and you can even 3D printed calipers. But you know, for 12.95, you can buy a really excellent uh, digital calipers on on Amazon uh, that has a plunge. Gauge, and so long as you're holding that, you know, perpendicular to the film plane with your mm-hmm. camera set up. Generally, the way I do it is, I have a Speed Graphic body on my desk, and if somebody sends me a lens or I have a lens that I want to model, I will make sure that the front standard is perfectly straight and parallel to the film plane. I'll go outside, I'll focus the lens on infinity, I'll lock the standard and the rails down, and then I'll come inside, take the lens off, and then uh, turn the camera on its back. And then use the plunge gauge really uh, oh, see. vertically to yeah. go from uh, the front of the lens board to the film plane, and I'll know exactly. And then, like I said, you know, when I model the cone, I allow focus maybe a millimeter to three millimeters behind infinity, where it's basically useless. But then, you know, if there's uh, weird atmospheric uh, expansion or contraction or Um, somebody has measured incorrectly uh, then you know they can compensate for that when they make their focus scale you
1: you were one thing i did pick up on from your interview with uh, with mike rasso and his and his colleagues Uh, is uh atmospheric conditions affecting probably the helicoid or the focusing mechanism but Mm -hmm. is that the main area where weather can affect your camera Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i mean it doesn't affect it a ton but Yes. So the, the, in any sort of mechanical system, right, you have a trade-off between um, let's say uh, smoothness and, and sort of tightness, right? So as you uh, have uh, two interacting parts that are, you know, not tight against each other at all, you have wobble, right? But if you make it too tight, then you don't have any movement because everything is jammed. And so the trick for the, the helicoid focusing uh, is that it's got to be tight enough so that the helicoid doesn't wobble but not so tight that you can't turn it and so that's a precision adjustment i think this was the problem with the travel wide um i again think the travel wide was a really excellent product it did or, or idea you know it was supposed to do a very uh simple thing um at a really excellent price and it was no frills i like that about it but you know the, they were many years ago when 3d printing was not really a thing and they um you know they made a fairly similar camera but they had it injection molded and um you know it wasn't very many parts uh and so one of the big problems with that camera is like plastic is hydroscopic so which means it's it's going to absorb you know moisture out of the air which is you know, not, not the biggest deal. It doesn't like uh, expand like a sponge. Right. But on a, on a very microscopic scale, like on the order of a 10th of a millimeter or a hundredth of a millimeter, you know, it, it might swell or, or contract depending upon the humidity and the temperature. And so, you know, the way I combated that is again, like we were talking about with the rack and pinion on the original hammer tactile is, Instead of making um, a focusing ring that was one piece, I have split it in the middle. It's actually the ring itself is three pieces and has eight, um, uh, like, Allen key screws, hex head screws. And you can take that apart and adjust it for, you know, different tensions. So I have shipped a couple to people. So I'm I'm in the high desert. Um, I'm at, like... 5700 feet right now in my house and it has been relatively cool and very very dry here so the plastic is just about at its you know smallest um but i've shipped a bunch particularly some of the early models i shipped one to m and i think he had this problem um and i shipped one to uh nick so m is in where it is hot and humid all the time. Uh, Nick Lyle of the homemade camera podcast, who says hi, by the way, uh, over text, Um, Mm -hmm. he's in Whidbey Island, which is outside of Seattle. Again, not super hot, but very moist. Um, Basically when these things go down to sea level and get uh, into a hot, um, moist environment, often uh, that helix tolerance, which might be on the order of a hundredth of a millimeter um, might change a little bit and they tend to stick. And so, Basically, they just have to, you know, loosen these eight screws, and they work fine. So,
1: so I can see if folks listening, if you go to uh, Cameradactyl.com dot com and forward slash, well, just type in Cameradactyl og probably, and, and it'll take you there. See, so it's some quite good photographs. So I've, I can see these screws, and and so you've got the you've got the black nose cone, and mainly the say the black body, and then you've got this. The one I'm looking at's at, got a yellow. That would be the focusing sort of grip, is it? You turn, this one big yellow thing, so you turn. Yeah. yeah, turn, turn that, and then there's these screws around the face of it.
2: Right. So the, the nose cone, to get uh, semi-technical here, is like the nose cone has a little bit of a flange lip that the um, focusing ring uh, attaches around, and so that can uh, spin you know, infinitely and smoothly, um, except for that there's a a focusing helix, which has a lens board on the front of it. And that uh, will interact with the front piece of the, the uh, focusing ring. So that when the focusing ring turns, the helix moves in and out and, you know, there's a stop at the back of it. So you can't focus the the helix right off the camera or anything like that. Um, Yeah. And then you can, um, because the helix has, uh, three pieces. It's it's like a clamp, and so as you tighten those eight screws, it um, becomes tighter to the body. I see.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 very I'm in a very dangerous situation here because there's this. I'm on the page and there's my thing is hovering over add to cart. I'm doing. <laughs> I'm very very. Um, I'm in danger of buying something online while we're recording a podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> stop me simon quickly
0: <laughs> well uh, I'll, I'll i'll give you give a give you a bit of time to draw draw breath there and come to your senses or not because i actually think it's i think you should buy it actually go on go on get it get it andrew um,
2: um
0: the uh the the helicoid on there so what what kind of if if we say using a 90 mm lens which i assume that's pretty much the most common size i'm i'm guessing would would that be right to say
2: yeah, I think the very most common size is a 90, and then the second most common is either a 127 slash 135. I think those were really common press lenses. I think they're pretty good lenses for this type of camera because they're very small, they're very light, they're inexpensive, um, they're very bright. They're not the sharpest lenses. Um, I like the look of the 127 Actar. It, it fits me. It's, it's not... Um, you know, nearly as sharp as like a Nikkor lens or, or even a Fuji lens, but, um, yeah, they can be had for very little money. Um, you can even buy them usually because they're so old, you can buy them with gum shutters and then, you know, take 40 minutes and clean them, which is maybe something we should talk about later. But, um, yeah, those two focal lengths are, are the most common, but, uh, so far, you know, again, I have made them down to 47 millimeter for, uh, Matt Joseph uh, photo dude ends. Um, he has like this really ridiculously wide pancake version of it with a giant helical to fit over his enormous lens. I think he put like a $1,200 lens on my $200 camera. <laughs> um, and then I made them up to like 200, 205, 210 millimeters that are, um, you know, that's a longer focal length than I ever really use on this type of camera. And it, it makes it kind of a, a pretty large physical object that i would yeah. find annoying but um you know there's some people who are shooting studio portraiture or even like sort of macro stuff with them
0: well it's it's interesting when you just mentioned the macro there because I'm, I'm just thinking about the amount of travel that you have with the uh with the, with the focus ring there mm-hmm. so say with a with a a, a normal 90 mil uh, mm-hmm. lens uh how what's your minimum focus distance distance on one of those
2: yeah so actually let me clarify because i don't want to do any false advertising here uh, the macro stuff i had uh i think two or three requests to shoot macro stuff that would focus you know down to like a foot with a long lens and i said uh i really can't make that unless i make it really huge and unwieldy that goes you know from infinity to one foot, And so I've made a couple that, you know, specifically are macro, you know, copy style cameras that focus from, you know, one to six feet, something like that. But those are, those are sort of special order products. I almost never sell those. Um, so, well, but, I mean,
0: the, the thought occurred to me that, uh, I mean, does, when the, the actual way that the lens fits into the, into the cone, does it, uh, it won't screw in there, will it? Because not all lenses have got a thread at the back, will they? So,
2: well, so almost all lenses have a thread in the back, but it's a thread for a retaining ring, just yeah. like you would mount it on any lens board. Yeah, and you just put it in. You know, I can do it by hand for most of them, or with a lens wrench.
0: Well, well, in in, in that case, then it would. In this, my theory says that you'd be able to put an extension on.
2: Um. Yes and no. So the deal with an extension is eventually your lens is pushed so far out in a barrel that depending upon the nose cone, you might get some vignetting. Yeah. Yeah. But generally, you know, my, my cameras, again, depending upon um, the lens in play, um, will focus, you know, down to three or four feet. So, you know, they're fine for portraiture and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I think I think we're starting to venture into the homemade camera uh, podcast territory now. Because I'm just just uh, think, thinking out loud and think the things you could do there, because you could potentially have a have a wider cone, and then and that would yes. potentially allow yes, the to have more travel on the lens. And
2: right, and so for like cameras like the one I made for Matt and his 47 millimeter lens, um, because the lens was so big and also the angle of view was so big. I actually had to make the helix enormous and the focusing ring is enormous. So it's like a really flat lens with a huge helical um, so that it doesn't vignette. yet. But um, I generally try and keep the helical as, you know, I, I make it big and chunky so you can get your fingers around it. And, you know, there's like a lock screw on it so you can lock it down and use that as sort of focusing tab. But um, I try not to make it, you know, overly huge. I, I think it's nice to have something that'll, know fit in a bag and and you can wrap your hands around it without having to be seven feet tall
0: yeah so if you you've you've got yourself a, a 90 mil lens on there uh, let's say i've i mean i've got a, a, a woolen sack um 60 mil It's not 60. sure uh 90 mil uh, huh? 6.8 and uh, and i'm thinking well that that would go on there quite nicely and give us some nice pictures but it's a bit dark um yeah. and at some point in the future i think well i might be able to get something a bit faster um mm-hmm. uh, it, would it is it feasible to actually is there a system on there to actually swap lenses or is it a case of it's you need a a different cone on there and give you the spec and you swap the cone out
2: yeah so i mean there are um a bunch of lenses that would fit the same cone but not all lenses of the same focal length will fit the same cone uh, both because you know the physical dimensions of the rear element are sometimes different And because like, if you have a Nikon or a Canon, they all have a standardized flange focal distance, but because large format lenses were designed to go on, you know, mostly Bellows cameras and cameras where that distance can be easily adjusted. um, What happens is like, so for example, I have a 127 Anastigmat 4.7 from Kodak and a 127 Hektar 4.7 from Kodak, which are ostensibly, you know, almost identical lenses. But their flange focal distance is actually uh, ten millimeters apart. Um, and so very rarely can you swap lenses uh, on the front of it. You can swap the cone on on the camera, but it's a delicate process where you can destroy the camera by swapping the cone. and so I've swapped the cone for a couple people and remanufactured the camera into you know a different method, but it's not something that I would recommend that um people you know carry a screwdriver and and start swapping the cones in their you know camera bag out while they're shooting ethan, also it requires some calibration after it's done
1: ethan while I, if i'm shooting with my uh, f- my field camera on a tripod then i'm going to be looking through the uh looking through the ground glass and focusing onto that but do, do you think this handheld og camera you are you shooting it mainly sort of uh zone focusing or using your calibrated scale and guessing the distances or using a little range finder, how are you using it in practice?
2: So I've actually used it in all of those ways, right? So it has um, a ground glass on it, which um, I offer three ground glasses. So one is actually just a ground glass, which um, is the brightest and the nicest to use, but I don't recommend it because it's glass and you can break it And the way. I like to use this camera is just to toss it around. Although, I was really proud of this little detail as I made the ridges on the back of the focusing screen towards the camera user in a way such that you can just slide a uh, standard four by five film holder over uh, over the, the screen and under the elastic bands. And it works like a protector for your uh, ground glass, which is helpful for throwing yep. actual glass in your backpack. Uh, but um, only very, very slightly dimmer. Um, I've been making laser cut acrylic uh, focusing screens, and I think those are really nice because you could hammer on them, and they're not going to break. Um, and also, I can laser cut a uh, one centimeter grid if people want it instead of just doing a plain one. Um, so I have to use that like for some precision uh, work. Right? You can focus with a uh, with a loop. And then the other thing that I suggest to most people is that um, you know you put your camera on the tripod when you first get it, and you use. Uh, the loop to focus at set di- distances, right? Focus at infinity. Focus at ten meters, uh, seven meters, five meters, whatever your scale that you normally shoot at, um, and then just mark with a sharpie marker on the back. Um, actually, made made Hamish a custom uh, laser cut uh, focusing scale for his, but I'm not going to offer that because of. So sorry, a where about you? Thoughts.
1: Where are you marking these? Uh...
2: So it, it depends on on a longer uh, nose cone mm-hmm. I can get away with marking them on the back of the cone uh, on the back of the focusing ring um, so that I can see them through the viewfinder on a shorter nose cone like Hamish's which is for a 90 um, I mark them on the front of the nose cone um, and one of the things I like to do while I'm doing that and so I've gotten really good at like just judging distances by eye and scale focusing, particularly, you know, when I'm shooting at f8 to f16. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I often like more precise work and I don't always like to break out the loop and or a tripod, although I can hand hold the loop now. Um, so when I make the focusing scale, instead of traditionally measuring the distance to the lens, actually you know the camera's got three hot sh- or cold shoes on the top of it and so i measure the distance to the cold shoe so that i i bought this uh prazia uncoupled range on ebay for about 32 dollars, and um because i measured the distances instead of to the lens but to the cold shoe i can uh, one it's like the distance i'm judging actually from my face rather than you know it could be six inches to nine inches away from my face where the actual lens sits, and two, I can use um, if I'm doing sort of more precise stuff, I can use this uncoupled rangefinder, read the distance, quickly transfer it to the lens, and then take a picture. Yeah,
1: I have a, I think I have one similar. I have a water meter, I think is another,
2: yeah, version. yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, I made a lot of them,
1: yeah, and they're really good. And yeah. I get some of them you can adjust and 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 calibrate. My one came, I had to fiddle with the screw and get the patches to line up, I think, or something. I can't remember them, yeah. but it works well. But I I tend to use a lot of judging distance approach as well with the old 1960s folding rangefinders. I have a few of those. Mm-hmm. And so I – not rangefinders, folding cameras, but without a rangefinder, you know, on them. So sure. I have a Netar 6 6x9, and I, I tend to just judge the distance. And nine times out of ten, I get a pretty sharp uh, – image mainly probably because i'm stopping down to f8 or something
2: yeah and, and it really like it depends what you're shooting right so if i'm shooting landscapes um i, I don't bother with a rangefinder. i just set yeah. it to infinity, infinity. Yeah. Um, or hyper focal distance mm-hmm. um, if i'm going to shoot a portrait often you know one of the things that i really love about large format which is sort of contra to what a lot of other people love about large format is you can get a super shallow depth of field and so, if I'm shooting a portrait close up at you know wide open 4.7 or even 5.6, then I'll I'll use the uh, the rangefinder, uh, read the reading exactly, and transfer it to my lens, and you know then I can get a very uh, sort of thin depth of field, you know, just on somebody's eye, and let the background and, and even their nose fall out of focus. And there's this
0: something uh, that just. Come into my head there, when we've been talking about the terminology there of uh, things like minimum focus distance and uh, where where to measure from. Um, and there's a, I, I just feel feel the need to say this really. And that's minimum focus distance is measured from the focal plane um, rather than the front of the lens uh, because that's work. That's the minimum working distance. Mm-hmm. So, um, so so for absolute precision, if you need precision, and you've got to work out whether whether. In fact, that's why uh mass produced cameras have got a, a little symbol on the usually on the top plate of the camera um and that, that applies with digital today as well uh, and it, and it's a it's a straight line with the with the circle um in the in the centre of it and that uh, gives you um your plane of focus from from the actual uh sensor or or the film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I've just shut the conversation down. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> hey, I, I thought of one other focusing mechanism that I have not tried yet, but um, actually, one of my customers, uh, shout out to Jay Christian Parent on Instagram, uh, who takes the best pictures of pizza over and over and makes me very jealous out here. Uh, he bought a CameraDactyl OG and made this crazy thing, which I have seen on a Minox, um, which is like. On those old Minox cameras, often what you were doing was like being a spy and copying documents. And so the Minox had like this chain strap and on it, there were like different balls at precise lengths. So you could put the ball at, you know, the document you were copying and stretch Mm. the camera Mm. far away um, to have like one meter or half a meter and then just set the scale that way. Um, John Christian Parent, made himself a long rope uh, with knots in it at different lengths. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about doing is uh, making a rope uh, with maybe a couple of knots at different uh, lengths that I'm interested in taking portraits in. And just like, um, you know, while I have somebody stand for a portrait, just toss them in the end of the rope and ask them to uh, hold the knot right by their eye. <laughs> I think it would be it's kind of a wacky way to do things, but, but also extremely precise.
1: Yeah, because to be honest, when you when you when you're that when your depth, depth of field is, is that shallow, it's all very well focusing on the eye, but then you you know you move your position slightly, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you lose it, don't you? So if you if you had them hold that bit of string right next to the eye and you got yourself braced for the shot, and then at the at the moment of truth they just released it, you haven't moved and nothing jogged your camera, and you should be good to go, shouldn't you? Great mm-hmm. idea.
2: Yeah. yeah, I can't take credit for it, but I, I yeah. really dig it. I'm going to make myself one.
1: So when I come to buy this camera, and I tell you when it will be, and there are some sound financial reasons why it will be January <laughs> next year, um, can you just fix a camera strap lug or something onto this
2: Yeah. So that's, um, a question I get often because there is no camera strap lug on it currently. Um, you can use like a black rapid style, um, strap that uh, connects to the tripod mount. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had been actually worried about strap lugs, but actually this camera that I'm working on for Nick, which is a roll film camera. I, um, this is Nick Lyle of the homemade camera podcast. Um, I figured it out finally and made these really nice, thick, uh, sturdy lugs. Um, What I was afraid of for a while is making camera lug or strap lugs that would either crack and drop the camera and an expensive lens Yeah. or, um, you know, I, I won't put out anything anymore. That's not super sturdy. And so I finally figured out the orientation of the lug to the orientation of the print layers in a way such that like, Again, with a hammer, you could not break this thing. Um, and so I think soon I may add that to the uh, camera deco back as as a you know standard feature. Um, the one thing that I would say is like a lot of times, if you have something like um, a Nikon f or a Canon f one or some you know sort of older camera that's been around the block a while, the area that gets brassed, which is, you know the, the paint rubs off or or the outer coating rubs off and you see brass is generally right around the strap lugs. And so how I'm designing them because plastic is a whole lot, you know, it's not soft. It's not butter by any means, but, um, it's uh, a lot softer than metal. And so what I don't want to see is people using like a key ring or, or, you know, metal clip through the lugs. I'd like to see, um, You know, uh, sort of a fabric loop with a buckle uh, through the lug itself, and then some sort of clip to the strap. Um, Or, you know, even um, Nikon straps. I think maybe even for digital cameras, I haven't bought one in a while, but, you know, certainly Nikon straps from the 90s and early 2000s just had a, you know, fabric end that doubled over itself and then went through a buckle on the strap rather than a, you know, clip to the lug.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Understand. Simon, are you there?
0: Uh, just, yeah, I'm here. Let's just have a a, a quick quick pause a second. Um, mm-hmm. So I just just uh, yeah just went off pieced there, there. I'm just I'm just just staring at uh, the, the OG. Um, yes, I haven't pressed buy yet, but um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the bit there where I've, you know, where you just lost me is I'm just, just going down the list of lenses and uh, it's got the 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 Sim RS uh 155.6 uh-huh. and i've got one of those <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a good one yeah, yeah you've um, got you've got even
1: less yeah. of an excuse than me
0: yeah yeah, yeah no, you you're quite well apart from the money i'm not saying it's expensive because it's not but I no
1: but you still got smart, to find it haven't you
2: yeah it's yeah uh, you got to get lenses and backs and shooting large format in general is uh you know that i think that's been i'm i'm excited about selling some smaller cameras Because large format is not just like a camera you can pick up and shoot. It requires like lifestyle changes. You know, you got to get. You can't bring sheet film to a mini lab most of the time, right? You got to get a tank. I mean, these aren't expensive things, but they're you know bulky. I keep a giant bucket of developing equipment uh, right outside my kitchen, which my girlfriend is not super happy about. Um, You know, you got to have a place to dry them and store them. It's like it's a big uh, it's a time investment, and it's a space investment, which you know I think is well worth it i'm I'm really into it, but um, I think it keeps a lot of people sort of out of the format um, you know, even if the equipment is relatively cheap, you know um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I
0: was, I was just going to say that—that that was going to be a pause, but I think we may as well leave that in because that was quite interesting what you just said there. Well, uh, I was in—I wasn't sure whether we were still recording or no, no. That, yeah, well, let's put it this way: it's—it's uh, it's all in there now. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, um, so uh, people are now hearing the mechanics of how this podcast apparently works. Um, uh, we've uh, got a, a another topic. Um, that but uh, I'm just con- conscious of time now, um, and we've got a, another topic that uh, I think we should cover, um, and that's uh, to do with a piece of work that you uh, have initially published on Emulsif uh, on Emulsif.com, and and that was actually one of the the first times I I came across your work, and it was uh, to do with uh, checking shutter times, and I think you were doing it on a um, a Yashika. Uh, I don't know if it was a GS1 or GS2, whatever it was called. Um, and uh, and that ultimately led to something that um, I then attempted at least to use on my uh, large format camera. So perhaps you might want to tell us a little bit more about the your, your shutter testing uh, equipment and uh, why that might be useful to people.
2: Yeah, so um, I think... This was well back when I was um, just printing cameras for a month and a half, and I had a lot of time babysitting printers. Um, I have a bucket to my right here that's just filled with broken cameras from my camera buying and selling days that I now sort of use to model grips on or, you know, tinker with. Um, my friend Dennis came over to my house and he was digging through it, and he found a Yashica uh, Electro 35 GSN, which is like you know, a little nice little rangefinder camera. It's pretty cheap. And he had one in college and he really loved that camera and said, oh man, you should fix this camera. It's, it's the greatest. Um, and so I was looking at it and it just had, um, so it's auto exposure only, uh, aperture priority. Um, and it had a dead light meter. So um, basically I, I could not find the same metering cell or some of the electronics that I needed to replace. Um, And I could have built a totally new meter uh, for it, uh, which actually led to a different project I'll get to. But um, basically I I figured out how to bypass the metering cell and add manual shutter speeds to that. Um, But the uh, manual shutter speeds corresponded to different resistances in the circuit that I switched between and, you know, a. Theoretical shutter speed, uh, as it related to like the discharge or charge time of a capacitor um, is very different than the actual mechanical speed of the shutter. And so what I needed to do was measure how these resistances related to um, the physical shutter speeds. And so, you know, you can buy a shutter speed tester for not that much money, but a couple hundred bucks, I believe. Um, But I, I also, you know, build industrial electronics for work and have all of these parts sitting around that are basically free you know and so I used um, I think I used an Arduino uh, Nano which is like a buck thirty from AliExpress or two dollars and a little laser and a laser sensor Um, and you know maybe the whole thing was five dollars worth of parts and so uh, basically I wrote this really simple little program that um, you know uh, monitors the sensor for a laser um, when uh, it sees a laser it starts a timer and then when the laser turns off it stops the timer and then it reads out um, you know how many milliseconds and then converts that to a fraction of a second for easier use and uh, I used this basically uh, originally so that I could calibrate the manual shutter speeds on that original camera but you know, it was a useful product and I um I have a lot of old lenses. I shoot a lot of large format lenses with old sticky shutters. And so it's useful. Uh, Basically you just point the laser straight through the middle of the lens and you put the sensor uh, at the film plane in line, you know, with the lens open on B and then you trip it and uh, see if it's, you know, fast or slow. I think even if you're not going to do a CLA and adjust your lens, it's good to know if certain uh, shutter speeds are, you know, more than a stop off. And then you can sort of just calibrate and remark if you're being lazy, or um, disassemble and clean and re grease, um, re oil uh, parts of the shutter.
0: I mean, I'm just going to say on on. There's a actually, there's a, a few few things. There. I mean, my my particular interest in this was because uh, my uh, shutter on my Meridian uh, with a. I mean, the lens is a Kodak Ektar 152mm uh, 4.5, and mm-hmm. it's got a...
2: Um, like a supermatic shutter, so probably. That's it,
0: yeah, I couldn't quite remember yeah. the name of it. Yeah, so it's got a supermatic <laughs> shutter, and I'd, I'd heard people saying that they're um, not necessarily giving you the exposures that uh, that, it, that right. you might think. And, uh, and I was certainly struggling uh, with it, it, it the slower speeds. Uh, to get a, to get a, any kind of an uh, accurate exposure. So I saw I saw the video, um, and if you go onto Emulsif, um, we'll put a link to this anyway. But if you if you're just hearing this, all you need to do is go to emulsif.org and type in shutter speed into the search um, box, and you'll you'll get um, how to build a simple Arduino shutter speed tester by Ethan Moses, um, yeah. and it's. It, oops, Oops, sorry about that. That was my—that was my dad again. I, t- I told him I was uh, doing a podcast this afternoon. He goes, oh, don't worry, I won't ring you. <laughs> He's done it twice now. Um, so. Um so yeah, so I, I saw this and thought, yeah, this this is for me. And I, and I, I saw all the parts and I think, well, this now this 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 has got to be done. You know, all the parts from China for well less than ten pounds here in the UK. Um, and they, I think, they took two months uh, to arrive. Yeah, it came yeah from they take a while. Different sources and yeah, I think you 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 alluded to that anyway. It's it's a, it's a bit like having presents to turn up uh, at the different yeah. days and, uh, and.
2: They call it Chinese Hanukkah
0: yeah exactly yeah and uh the the last the last piece to arrive was the uh the actual arduino itself not the that said though it doesn't really matter what the last piece was you needed all of the pieces to actually make it work so uh it didn't really matter what the order they turned up in um but i've i, I built it i followed the uh the video that you uh that accompanied it and uh and then the only only problem i had was i couldn't actually uh get the thing to communicate properly to to my computer and that's where we had a um a conversation and uh you, you you talked me through how to how to do that and as as a result of some of the cack-handed things i was doing on my computer it it, it messed up some of my comports and my microphones and uh i lost a whole episode of the classic lenses podcast oh no <laughs> I'm, <sorry. laughs> which, 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 oops, I'm just losing my microphone there uh, which uh i think i blamed you at the time uh, um, So. Um, so yeah, thank you Ethan. Um, <laughs> yeah, um it was actually an episode brilliant. that we uh, we did and we actually uh, I, I told the guys uh, that Carl and uh, Johnny uh, I've lost the episode and uh, and they said right let's do it again and we did uh-huh. we did the same episode in half the time uh, of the original sort of trying <laughs> to remember the things that we talked about and it was uh, it was it was funny. I think it probably actually turned out to be a better episode for doing it again. <laughs> um so uh, thanks for that. Thanks Ethan. Um <laughs> sorry. Um,
2: and you're but, welcome. <laughs> yeah
0: but uh i I've, I've actually been having a bit of trouble with this um, uh, device, but it's it's now gone I mean it must be at least three months old, so it's now quite flaky. Um, so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but my my biggest problem is when you when you're doing this with a a large format uh, lens you, you uh, you've you've got to support a lens board, you've got to support the um, the laser, you've also got to support the um, uh, the sensor as well.
2: And that's yeah, the so bit that
0: I'm stuck on at the moment, is that I need to build some kind of rig uh, to make everything all line up so I can just like press a button and make it work.
2: Yeah, so I think the, the two major causes of um, this being annoying, an annoying project to use is, one, if you're using a pin board to make the connections, those connections can become loose over time, which is easily fixable if you just solder the connections. And two, um, I did not yet make a 3D-printed uh, armature to hold the laser and the laser sensor in a perfect line. So I've left that up to people. And so if your laser is not hitting the laser sensor, or it's not hitting dead on, you're gonna have some issues with it. But, you know, I think I just made a, um, well, just a couple of months ago, I made an updated version that has um, two uh, lasers and two laser sensors to measure um, the speed of the front curtain, and then separately the speed of the rear curtain. On a dual uh, dual curtain focal plane shutter, something like on a, you know, Nikon F or a Leica, or uh, in my case, I was using it on a Kiev sixty uh, to calibrate the shutter speeds, um, and so I think I should probably release that soon and, and maybe make some easy three D printed armature that people can either buy or print themselves uh, to hold everything in alignment. I think that would uh, clear up a lot of a lot of issues with that.
0: Yeah, that, that would that would certainly help me. Um, the it, it's just worth actually discussing the reason. Um, I mean, I touched upon it that I can't really trust trust the speeds, and it's a case of you know I've I've got a, a tame camera repair technician, and he's taken a look at look at it, and you know it's he says, well, it's just how they are, <laughs> you know, and uh, even when some of these come out of the factory back in 1950 and uh, whatever you know they they weren't particularly accurate when they were yeah if
2: they were within a stop i think they're fine
0: <laughs> yeah I- I- exactly and over and and you over the over the passage of time then um especially at the slow speeds you got you got I, i'm guessing you got springs are losing a little bit of tension and things like that
2: so um actually on- onto that i think particularly the supermatics are very easy to do an overhaul and you don't need a lot of, um, mechanical knowledge. You just need a little bit of, um, you know, uh, a little bit of, I don't know, um, you know, patience and fine motor skills. But, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned that, that your speeds were off on the slow end. And my guess is that the slow speeds were way too slow. Yeah, um, as in you're overexposing. Correct. And, and so the way those shutters work is there's actually You'll notice on the Supermatics and like a lot of older cameras, um, you know, the original Leica's had two speed dials. The Supermatics and and some, you know, Ilex shutters will have two different um, yeah. sets of speed scales. And that's because on the first, you know, the the faster speeds, um, what's happening is you're actually increasing the speed of the shutter. So you're like in, increasing the um, the, the tension on that spring that's that's moving the blades and the slow speeds, um, you are interrupting uh, for some you know uh, mechanical clock amount of time, the amount of time between the opening and closing of the shutter, and so um, probably it starts at somewhere like a thirtieth or a fifteenth of a second down to one second, uh, they start getting really slow. And the reason for that is, you know, I would call that like an interrupter gear set that uh, basically starts uh, a stopwatch or like a little clock that that the shutter mechanism is pushing against uh, after it opens until it can close. And that's a separate gear train. And that gear train really like, you know, it's all very sort of precise, mostly brass gears, and they're oiled. But these things were produced, you know, mine is from 1944, Um, And they were oiled then. And, you know, if you ever have ridden a pedal bike, uh, you know that the chain grease or the chain oil or even wax that you use after a while will pick up dirt and gunk and sort of dry out and become heavy grease and eventually glue. And so generally what's going on is that you've got gunk or dust or both some sort of dirt in that interrupter gear set. um, And that will really slow you down or even stick the shutter open but um so i i would say it's it's actually a really good deal if you can find one of these things where uh like on ebay or something where the slow shutter speeds are off often it's not worth somebody's time to sit down for an hour and fix this you know but you can get a pretty good deal on one of these things and like almost always if it's just that the slow shutter speeds stick or or they're you know um slow uh it's it's a fixable thing without changing any parts or fixing parts it's just a matter of cleaning and so on a on a supermatic you can uh remove the face plate and the timing cam uh with three screws just make sure you put them in a film can or somewhere where you're not going to lose them do it on a white cloth where you're not going to drop them and then um i just use some like bronson oil or, or basically lighter fluid or naphtha yeah. something yeah. that's uh, you know, going to dissolve, uh, grease and evaporate really quickly. Um, and I do it on, with a Q-tip because you don't want to dissolve the grease with like squirting the lighter fluid onto it and then have that grease then settle, you know, into the blades. The worst thing to do is get grease on the blades because then the blades themselves will stick. Yeah. Um, and so you just, you know, very carefully just dab and wipe and, and just, um, you know, you don't have to disassemble that gear train. You can just use a Q-tip to clean it out, and then when you're done, you know, uh, one tiny drop of mineral oil at the center of each one of the the gears or gear sets, and uh, yeah, I mean that problem should be fixed. I've I've done three or four of them of late for hammerdactyls.
0: I think I think you'll um engineering skills are a, a, a couple of levels above mine but i think no, that's, i mean, this, this uh, is but,
2: totally doable by yeah. you, Simon.
0: well no I, I think i think the your your point you made there about potentially getting getting another um uh shutter and actually, just try not. If you know, if I can get a cheap shutter, then I can. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the same type. Then I can at least practice on one. And uh, and yeah. then I'm not going to completely uh, do it over if I do do something stupid. I'm thinking, but uh, yeah. in the in the meantime, the, the my thought process behind knowing what the shutter speeds actually are. Will be that uh, you're using your 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 device uh will be then if it's if it's running a stop slow then i'll i'll adjust uh the the aperture on the lens yeah. accordingly yeah. so uh um, because yeah we can we can use the latitude of film and some films have got obviously a lot more than others but I, I i just want to get it as close as i can do uh, beforehand um just to you know give give myself every chance i can be there because, uh, because i need all the help i can get with my uh, shots at the moment
2: How about this? Um, If and when you come across a gummed Supermatic Shutter or Ilex or even um, I can do Copals too, we should uh, do FaceTime maybe record the video. We'll make like a little tutorial. I'll walk you through it.
0: That sounds cool. Sounds very good. Um, You you mentioned something about uh, exposure, um, some work on exposure meters and things.
2: Oh, yeah. So that was another project in Butter Grip that is not crazy colored, but um, I had this camera uh, the Yashica rangefinder that then had manual shutter speeds and no exposure meter also you know uh, some of my favorite cameras to shoot with are sort of older rangefinders i have a Leica M4 and a Canon P that i shoot with pretty frequently but they have no meters and you know i'm pretty good at using like the Sony 16 rule and just uh, guessing um i I can guess within a stop almost always i've been doing it for years but you know indoors or in weird lighting situations i don't necessarily know and it's nice to have a little tiny meter so i made um this 3d printed uh little analog meter um it's got kind of like a dial calculator on the top uh with some laser cut dials on them and uh i made my own little pcbs and Uh, soldered them all up and made like it's just two LEDs for under and over and you turn the dial until you know it's uh, in the middle you set the ISO first and then read off the aperture and shutter speed combinations Um, it's not super tiny because it's 3D printed and has you know kind of a battery that will last forever in it but um, yeah it's like a little tiny brick that goes on top of your camera you can see them at buttergrips.com
0: no, that's that sounds really cool. But is that is that something that uh, because we we did have a chat about this or something similar? Um, uh, with, is that more like a personal project there, or is that something you think you you might be able to bring to market?
2: Oh no, that's something that I'm selling. Uh, I think it might be sold out on the website right now. Oh, I need to make good. them in batches. So because um, you know it it has a 3D printed case, but it's really an electronics project. Um, you know, I have to order so many. Uh, rotary switches and transistors and leds and uh you know i designed a circuit board so originally i like to you know solder everything up on a roto board that's like pretty big but you you can't fit things in a very small package that way or i can't my soldering skills are not that good so um i designed in KiCad a uh a pcb that everything mounts to and so i have the printed in batches as well. And then I just surface mount solder everything together. So that's, you know, one of the things that I can't just do manufacturer on demand, but I have to just make a batch of them and sell them out and make another batch of them. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's brought to market. So um, here in the States, we have FCC regulations and you guys have, um, I want to say it's CE regulations yeah, in, yeah. in Europe. Um, and so any device that's over um, not, nine nanowatts and or 1.6 megahertz which is basically any computer like your shutter tester or whatever um, needs to go through um, emc which is a uh, electromagnetic compliance testing basically to make sure it's not going to interfere with people's routers or it's not destructive and um, that testing requires a, a electromagnetically anechoic chamber uh, which is you know a multi-million dollar device and so it's not cheap to have it done and you know I could go off on a whole tangent about EMC testing but um, suffice it to say that um, if I have to do a project that requires a computer um, it's going to cost a few thousand dollars at the very least to bring it to market legally and so you know this shutter tester I actually Um, I think I could make one that is smaller, cheaper, more accurate, has better range. It's basically better in every way if I utilized a computer like I did on the shutter tester. Um, but instead I, um, oh, hang on. Oh, okay. Sorry. You guys are texting in the background. Instead, I built it, um, sort of with 1970s or 1980s technology utilizing like, uh, you know, a variable voltage divider and some transistors with no uh, no, real integrated circuit or, or computer logic in there. And so I could bring that one to market, you know, in small batches without having to um, go through FCC testing uh, to do it legally. And, you know, if that one sells a few more batches, maybe I will run a Kickstarter, uh, you know, I'll make myself one digital version of it with maybe an LED or LCD readout and, um, you know, uh, almost infinite range. And sell that, um, as a, you know, as a batch, rather than, um, rather than, you know, sinking 10 grand into testing before I sell unit one, I don't know. That's a whole long tangent on, on, uh, FCC testing, but yeah, I would like to build, um, a nicer light meter that I will bring to market at some point, but um, right now I'm sort of selling this um, semi-analog electronics light meter that's, you know, it's pretty good, uh, but it's uh, not tiny and has the capabilities of like you know three hundred dollars Siconic, for example.
1: Well, I'm I'm back. I've been on mute for a while, listening to you guys uh, <laughs> talking about things I didn't fully understand.
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: No, that's okay. Um, and I had a question, but um, it's gone completely out of my mind now. What I was going to ask you—it um, came to me. I was listening. I, was, I sort of had one ear on you while I was fiddling with my Toyo camera. Um, I, I go for for months without using my Toyo, and then I can't remember what different things do. So I was um, I was using the opportunity to half listen and half do something mm-hmm. else. Um, oh, I know what it was. So you were—we were talking before. Um, I think we were just messaging before we started. Were you saying that you had some thoughts on large format lens repairs,
2: or? Yeah, so I think I mean, we could get really into the weeds and lens repairs, but I think um, you know I ninety mean, percent of what these things need are just just a good cleaning, and I think because
1: they're quite simple lenses. To I mean, there's not much to go wrong, is there? Really? Yeah, yeah, mean, yeah. We no. can get into the whole fungus story thing, but oh yeah, yeah you can go and listen to Classic Lenses podcasts and the episode with uh, Lyndon to hear about fungus sure but i mean they basically, un- they basically unscrew and then there's a shutter in between which i guess it's the only thing that's going to go wrong is something with the shutter
2: yeah so I, I think it just needs you know a moderate amount of bravery a little bit of motor skills um some naphtha and some oil and just keep that oil off the blades
1: Ah, now you're on, you're on to uh, the use of naphtha. Now I did listen to Lyndon talking to Simon and his, yeah. his other colleagues and uh, I don't think Lyndon had ever used naphtha, but I think it's something Simon's repair guy uh, uses.
2: yeah. Um,
0: yeah. It, a- yeah it, 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 oh, hello, it's, Simon. Uh, yeah, I'm back. again. Um, yeah. Well, you talk about lenses now, are not you? Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't think you'd be muted for too long. No, no. Um, yeah, I, I don't actually. I don't, I haven't actually spoke to Lyndon about that since. where because I think he was going to give it a go because he had some reservations about it. So, um, yeah. uh, who, who knows what? I mean, there's a there are a lot of people out there that that, that use it and swear by it. So, uh, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, if they're happy with it, then that, that's 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 fine by me. Um, I'm, I'm thinking now we, we've, we've been going for quite some time, haven't we? Um, and, uh, so shall we do our one email, uh, for this week? Oh yeah. You want me to find it now, don't you? I do. Yeah. Talk we'll amongst yourselves. I, I give you, I give you one job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, that's actually, yeah, I won't, there's a story attached to that phrase, but I won't go into it now. <laughs> so this is our friend James Thorpe again. Hello, James. Thanks for, um, Keep sending us emails. It's
0: really nice of you. Uh, so is this the light meter, the light meter yeah, email? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Because we uh, we we spoke about it uh, yeah. last last week, didn't we? We did.
1: Yes. Um,
0: so James says,
1: "Yeah, thanks for this. Thanks for what? <laughs> <laughs> what we answer nothing? <laughs> is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've compared the Pro v Six and the Luna Six F." Which I believe is called the UniPro-F, Pro F in North America, and I've decided to go with the Profi Six. It seems to have a broader exposure range. While reading the instruction manual, courtesy of Butkus, good old Mike Butkus, and uh, I'll also say if you go to if you need any kind of camera manual or information, um, camera manuals, you can get them from Mike Butkus's site. Uh, but do drop him a PayPal donation to help support his website. I came across the paragraph, which seems to be a great tip. Um, and, I, and I'll and read this out, but before I read this little tip out, which I think he's got from the Prophysix uh, brochure, the manual that came with my Luna 6F is like a masterclass on exposure. It's not just a how to use the meter. It's really detailed, and, it's, um, and I've got to read it again because it's, It is uh, these are works. The the instruction manuals that come with these meters are are works of art in themselves. So James says, to preserve the night effect of darkness hmm, with little detail. So I think he means not true black, but also some detail in the shadows. You should actually use less exposure than the Profi Six indicates, so that the result does not look like a daylight scene. And I think I know what he's getting at. However, the re- reciprocity effect often produces the same results as shorter exposures. But there are no definite rules about it. To gain experience, start out with night exposure indicated on your Prophysics. And then it says the reci- reciprocity effect is fully explained on page 28. And, yeah, the, these manuals go into all sorts of details, both on the zone system and reciprocity. So I think what he's ki- what this manual is kind of referring to, I think, is that uh, if you point your meter at something, whether it's light, dark, or in between, it will assume it's a mid-tone, a mid-tone, and so your shadows will be lifted and brightened so that it looks more like daylight. So if you want it to look more like nighttime, you should probably reduce your exposure by one or two stops. So I think that's what that means. I think, But the point he's making is that these little manuals that come with these Gossen meters are just a mine of information. James goes on to say, also thanks for the wonderfully dense—I think that's talking about you there, Simon—intellectually <laughs> uh, <laughs> speaking um, podcast with Mr. Stephen Sigal. Oh, sorry, uh, Stephen Segersby. Uh, lots of food for thought. It certainly bears a repeat listen, and I appreciate the insightful answers to my questions. Did we give insightful? That must have been Steve. Based on the recommendations, I've ordered the Andrew Sanderson night photography book, and I should be on commission. I really should. Cheers, James Thorpe. Is that that's his email, isn't it? It's he sent he sent several. several. I've got a whole history of emails from him here.
0: He's he's been writing to us since the very beginning. Um, so it's yep. this like one one question follows follows the other. So uh,
1: thank you, James. Yeah. we do
0: appreciate it. That's that's it, and. Um, also uh like to do at the uh, towards the end of the show is to thank uh, those people who have donated to us um so interesting enough uh, James Thorpe being being one of them and again uh sorry again James Thorpe and again uh, Christopher J May um and uh, so thank you uh thank you both for, for those donations if anybody wants to help us with five five or six cups of coffee now we up to yeah, yeah we're doing we're doing pretty well at the moment so um, <laughs> yeah so uh, no thank you very much for those if um, anybody wants to uh, help us with the um, hosting fees and all those things that, that, that go with uh, a, a podcast um, you can donate to us at uh, coffeecom that's ko -FI dot com and then search for um, I was going to say the classic lenses podcast but no no um, it's the large format photography podcast actually that's a point Uh, when I gave out at the end our email address last week I actually gave out the classic lenses uh, podcast uh, address and of course I keep on saying last week no I've got to actually say two weeks ago even though it was one week ago when we actually recorded it so uh, (laughs) just to keep the confusion going there um right um I I think we're we're pretty much uh, at, at the end of things, um, Ethan. It's been absolutely brilliant uh, to have you have you with us. And we've, you know, as as we tend to do, we have uh, web pages open and uh, Facebook's been been open. There's a there's a chat room going um, between a few of us podcast hosts, and uh, and Andrew's been uh, commenting upon this podcast as we've been going along, and uh, M. Has, uh, has decided, well, he's come to the conclusion. So this, this podcast is pretty much just technical support for Simon then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for the technical support, uh, Ethan. It's been <laughs> very, very, use, very, very useful.
2: Hey, thanks for indulging me and thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure, one, uh, to have the free advertising, but also to, to talk to you know, some of the people I, I listen to all the time. That's uh, great.
1: Thank we you. have um, in the UK, Mike Walker. You'll be perhaps familiar with Mike Walker, who makes oh yeah uh, Titan. Make Titan cameras, amongst other things. And he's uh, bless him. Uh, he won't come on our lensless podcast. Uh, on our lensless podcast, and I don't know whether he'll come on this show. I haven't. I haven't asked him. Uh, but for a man who um, is not shy of putting his products forward, he he doesn't want to come on. So Mike, if you, li- I've no idea if you actually listen to this. I think you perhaps you do.
2: I got. I gotta come say, on. You, come on. you know, uh, there's a YouTube video, maybe from the 90s, about how large format cameras are assembled, and they're all Titan cameras, and it's like a real, like almost 90s industrial video, but it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I saw that thing years ago, and I, I really loved um, you know that, that video. And have you and seen the you one from the Gandolfi, the
1: Gandolfi family, when that was factory was still going in in East mm. probably East London. It no, I don't a think it's a I video. Heard. If it's on YouTube, if you type in "was it Gandalf?" Gandalf, Gandalfi. Uh-huh. Oh, I've forgotten how to say it. <laughs> it's not Gandalfi. Gandalfi it's not yeah. Gaddaf- how do you say it? What is it? It's not Gandalfi. 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 Oh, Gandalfi. <laughs> Gandalfi. 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 Anyway, so there was um, towards the end of their production run, there was a, a video made, and it's on YouTube, and I think it's probably the early seventies, mm-hmm. and these things being handcrafted.
2: Oh, I gotta look. But yeah, I I would love it if you guys got Mike Walker on there. I I have been aware of him. I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, I'd love to hear him talk.
1: Hmm. So if you're listening, Mike, you've resisted my uh, request to come on the Lensless podcast. Maybe the large format photography podcast is more up your street.
0: Well, we we do we do have some form on this uh because uh I tried to get Rachel to go on the classic lenses podcast for ages and uh, she and she said no and mm. uh asked once for about coming on onto here and jumped at it yes,' because yeah. I was on this one with you <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly clearly the only answer there but that the, but it could be because Mike wants to talk to me instead of you if he does come on to this one then i guess could so, be uh, <laughs> who knows um right have you uh Oh, no, before I do, do shout-outs um, – well, actually, no, it will be shout-outs. Um, have you got any shout-outs, uh, uh, Ethan, that you want, you want to say hello to anybody? Not that anyone's
2: listening. Oh, man, I should have I thought. Um, yeah, you know, I, the list could go on and on, but the, the whole, like, uh, internet film community from, you know, podcasters to website hosts, uh, it's it's been – really great. I I'm, I'm now a podcast tart, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's been so fun and interesting to meet everybody, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to single anybody out, but, but thank you all so much. Yeah.
0: Well, on, on, on that note, you, you will be making a, a future appearance on the classic lenses podcast as well, just to, uh, complete <laughs> your tartness.
2: <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to it. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, uh, before we do contacts and things like that, um, Andrew, have you got any shout outs you want to say anything this week? Um,
1: no one. Eventually I'm going to come on prepared for this, aren't I? Um, and as, as, as you were asking, I thought, sugar, I should have, I should have come prepared because there are some, there's people, folks on the, on the large format photography podcast, Facebook group, who I definitely want to shout out about, um, but I can't remember who they are. So next time,
0: yeah, two weeks' we've time, got, I'll try got, and remember. We've got a lot of good people on that group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll, so
1: basically I'll just shout out to the, if, as I say week on week, if you don't do Facebook, that's fine, but do Facebook just for the groups and do Facebook just for the large format photography podcast. Yeah. Facebook group, because there's some great people in there already, fairly small group still, but growing. And hey. uh, there's some great stuff.
2: Hey, can I actually make a plug? I I thought about, it. um, for those people who are really like interested in the, the technical babblings about how things work and, and are really curious about it. One, one podcast that I'm a real big fan of and disclaimer friends with the the hosts now after pestering them for years is the homemade camera podcast. I think it's a a little known gem, but, um, they get real deep into the weeds and it's pretty specific to maybe only a few of us listeners, but, um, if you're into that sort of thing, and camera building in particular, um, check it out.
1: Yeah, I mean, you guys have had Nick on the, on the uh, Classic Lenses podcast, haven't you? And yeah. We've had, uh, we've had uh, Graham on twice, in fact, on the Lensless podcast. I don't know how he managed that. <laughs>
2: yeah, he's a real podcast tart too. <laughs> he is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: well, yeah. And Nick's also in our group as well. And uh, yes, yes yeah, so when we when we'll have we, to think of a
1: collective noun for podcast tarts <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right so we'll set that we'll set that as a, a task for the lens of podcast Facebook group, so we come up with a good name for a collective name for podcast tarts
0: <laughs> um, so uh, Ethan, if people uh, want to buy a camera or see the kind of kind of things that you do in, in general what, what what are the places that you could point them towards
2: sure so um you can shop from camera Cameradactyl at camera at that's c-a-m-e-r-a d-a-c-t-y-l.com um, you can also find me and uh, some of my work on instagram at at Cameradactyl or at Buttergrip.
0: A- excellent and uh and that's pretty much it for this week. Um, so I just uh, want to say a thank you to Kevin MacLeod, uh for our theme music, uh, Two Fingered Johnny. Um, mm. What have you got to say about that then, Mr Forsyth? Well, I've got, I've got plenty to say about that, but we'll uh, perhaps say, I'll, I'll say it a bit more quickly than I thought. And, uh, and that's... Um, uh, I think we touched upon this last time, actually, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Yep. Um, so uh, we did. We, uh, having been heavily criticised uh, by uh, Graham Jago who um, we can't call a podcast Tart just yet because I think he's only actually been on one of the podcast uh, to date. Um, so uh, when he when he's, I think when he's been on two podcasts, I think we can call him a podcast <laughs> Tart. Um So uh, yeah, so he he, he heavily criticised our 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 music, and um, so we did we did a poll in the uh, large format uh, photography podcast group, and uh, I I put a question there that was uh, very balanced, um, and gave. People their uh, options such as uh, yes, keep two finger Johnny or two finger Johnny rocks, you know, or to, or two fingers up to Graham. Uh, well, well, that that was that was a thing. Um, that one did uh, did did actually come up on the Instagram. Uh, it, it was was suggested. Um, somebody uh, by the name of Jimmy Hickford uh, <laughs> added. Another option into the poll to say that Two Finger Johnny should retire, um, <laughs> and uh, the re- the results of the uh, of the of the podcast are, are such um, that uh, yes, keeping it, uh, we've got twenty one votes. Uh, Two-finger Johnny uh, got three votes. That's, so pretty much that makes that 24 positive votes there. Um, and then there's another one uh, say that uh, the, the the song is great and people named Johnny tend to be thoughtful, intelligent, well-mannered, um, <laughs> even even if they only have two fingers. Which was put in there by Johnny Sisson, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and that got four votes as well. So even even more positive votes. By all people called Johnny, by any chance? Uh, well, uh, no, 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 no. They wouldn't. We swear. We've got. Um, who who else is in there? Yeah, there, there, there are other people in there. Um, but uh, yeah, in the in the no camp, uh, because uh, Graham didn't even bother to vote. Um, <laughs> so that could, could have been the casting vote. <laughs> he um, can't complain, then, can he? If it, he, he can't, be he can't to complain, vote. He can't, um, um, he can't complain. But we had uh, Jimmy Hickford who, who put the uh, the question there. He was a naysayer. And uh, Stephen Stephen Segersby uh, also voted no. So so it's it's pretty much overwhelming support for the uh, for the podcast music. So um, thank thank you everybody that uh, for that vote of confidence in it. And uh, so Two Finger Johnny will continue. Yay! Um, so, uh, <laughs> there we go. So so that that's it for uh, this week's show. I keep calling it this week's show. I mean it's a. I should say this fortnight show, isn't it? Yeah, it's that's, a bit clunky though, isn't it? it? It is. It doesn't doesn't quite work. Um, but uh, I hope you've en- enjoyed this fortnight's show, <laughs> um, and it'll be great if you can join us again in a fortnight. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.